time has come to retool our playing for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. Tracy Silverman, your host of the For the Greater Groove podcast, The Future of Strings. And in the string playing world, there are a few names that everybody knows. Yo-Yo Ma, Itzhak Perlman, and if you're talking about electric violin, there's Jean-Luc Ponty. He is the father of all modern jazz violinists, and he single-handedly put the electric violin on the map. He is certainly one of the most visionary and groundbreaking string players of all time. From his first recordings, in which he came blazing on the jazz scene as a 22-year-old violinist, playing like some of the most progressive horn players at the time, to his huge success with electric sounds in the early jazz fusion world, and his collaborations with some of the greatest jazz artists and rock stars. So I have to tell you a quick story. When I was 16, I was a classical violinist about to enter the Juilliard School. And my older brother, who was a big rock fan, uh, he gave me three LPs and very seriously said, here, you're going to need these. One was Jimi Hendrix's Cry of Love. One was Frank Zappa's Hot Rats. And the other was Jean-Luc Ponty's Enigmatic Ocean. And it changed my life forever, as it did with a whole generation of string players. Jean-Luc went to the Paris Conservatory. He was admitted at the age of 16, graduated two years later with the highest honors, the Premier Prix. He was awarded the Legion of Honor in France. He has a list of lifetime achievement awards as long as his bow arm and holds the Medal of Honor in the city of Avranches, France, where he was born. What an honor and a lifelong dream to sit and chat with the guy who basically changed the entire course of my life. The one and only Jean-Luc Ponty. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, you know, there is one question that I've had that when I was 16 years old and listening to this wonderful record is, what is that sound? What is the effect that you're using? It's like a phase shifter or a mutron or something. What is that sound? Because it, it became... Uh, something you used for years on so many recordings, and it's so beautiful, it's so analog, it sounds like an analog sense. What is that sound? It's uh, a long time ago, and uh, I'm sure I get it right, but the very first uh, phase shifter I had, it was a phase shifter, maestro phase shifter. Maestro. Uh -huh. Well, no, you're too young probably to have that. <laughs> oh, wow. It was like... Uh, like this size, like a pedal board yeah. with three switches, three speeds. Uh -huh. And therefore it was, um, it gave a bit of a Leslie effect, like this organ, you know, you could yeah. just 
with a slow phase and speed up and turn. That's why I liked it. And I believe uh, it was, um, uh, you know, when I was with Zappa's band, you know, they were they were guys, electronic engineers who would uh, yeah. come up with new uh, devices, new sound effects, and would come to famous people like him to please try it, you know, hopefully. And so Frank uh, would try, and then he, he would tell me, try it, you know, too. So we'd plug it in, and uh, that's how it started. But uh, Enigmatic Ocean, it could have been the next device I got was just a small um, pedal board, small switch, um, MXR, I think. Uh-huh. I think. Phase shifter as well. Yeah, well, it's such a beautiful sound. It had such a uh, filter. The filter is so clean. It almost yeah. sounds like a wah-wah, but you're obviously not manipulating it. It's automatic. Oh. Yes. Uh, I, I have used wah-wahs eventually, but uh, not in enigmatic ocean. Anyway, uh, the reason is I was not really too happy with the uh, straight sound of the electric violin I had. Yeah. Although when I listened back to it, I must say it was pretty good. It was Barker's Berry. The, Barker. the, the, even the early ones? Yeah. Yeah, uh, these were the very first electric violins I got were from Barcus Berry. John Berry one day showed up in a club where I was playing in Los Angeles and uh, gave me his first prototype. And uh, so, and that's what I kept using for until the early 80s, uh -huh. including uh, uh, Enigmatic Ocean. And uh, since I was not so thrilled with the straight and imaginary voyage, yeah. <laughs> uh, since I was not so thrilled with the straight sound of the electric instrument, yeah. Uh, even though these uh, are um, electroacoustic, not entirely solid body. But anyway, right. we, that's why when I discovered these sound effects, you know. First with Zappa, then with Mahavishnu, then people came to me when I started to be a little more well-known and gave me stuff. And uh, there are some effects like the phase shifter and later on chorus, which uh, I really um, liked because it gave another color, you know. Uh, since I couldn't, with this type of instrument, there was no way I was going to reproduce a natural sound on an acoustic instrument. Right. And I decided to go the other way around. Right. And get it as good as I could.
which is an interesting part of your whole story, that shift from the acoustic, because when you first started playing in the 60s from those first albums, Sunday Walk and, and the ones preceding that, it was an acoustic violin with a, with a pickup on it, I'm guessing. That's it. Yeah, and I know I've read that you said you didn't really like the sound of that, but it, in a way you did because it had a very horn-like kind of sound. Yes, you know, and uh, and it's you know all of these things are intertwined. The way you use your vibrato and all of that as part of the sound on those early records, the very first records. I was uh, I loved the sound that you got. Like here, I'm just going to play something for you. From the Humer Luis Ponti record, you've changed, and you're playing with this just a very saxophone. It's a dark kind of uh, sound, yeah. And you can hear, you know, it has the bow, you know, the percussive bow uh, sound whenever you change bows, which maybe you didn't love, but it almost sounds like, you know, like tonguing on a sax, uh, and uh, and that combination of that dark sound that doesn't sound exactly like an acoustic violin. It sounds almost like a horn. Uh, did you did that change the way you you played the instrument, make you feel like you could play more jazzy because of that sound? Yeah, it, it was closer to um, to a sax indeed, uh, a trumpet. Yeah. Um, which is why, after all, I said, okay, because at first I was not thrilled. You know, my goal was to just amplify the traditional sound of an acoustic or the classical instrument. But at the time, there was no way. You know? Yeah. Now you have these clip-on mics. It's another story. You know? right. Now you can do it, but not then. Especially that I needed enough volume to play with a drummer. Right. And so uh, I had to use an amp. And uh, plus the, that, that um, uh, pickup was laying down on the table of the violin and uh, it was warm but it made the bottom range bigger yeah 
and and then he couldn't even it couldn't go as high as the very high notes on the violin. He didn't. Yeah. <laughs> at all. That was weird. So at first, you know, it was I was a little uh, uh, surprised of what I was getting with this amp, but after a while, I say after all, yeah, I can develop a sound that will be that will will have uh, will, will be as big as a saxophone. Especially yeah. in the low range. And so I, I thought it could be well adapted to the style of music I was playing then. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, the effects that you put on it, like distortion or course or certainly delay, it changes what you play and the way you play. Uh, and and so I, I think the, you know, your career having moved through many generations of technology, from those first days with a pickup that you know sat on the body of the violin to the Barcus Berries to later on your work with electronics and and MIDI violins and all that kind of stuff um Zeta. I, yeah and uh, I just think it's so interesting how that sort of paralleled the type of music that you were making all of that time yeah, the fact that the sound was taking me away completely from classical, the classical traditional sound helped me uh, get another phrasing as well. Yeah, exactly. But, but uh, also to understand, uh, uh, I started playing jazz on clarinet. Yes. Not on violin and uh, sax uh, as well. I played tenor sax. Yeah. And so it was by accident one day I didn't have my sax nor clarinet and I was coming out of a classical gig and I wanted to jam with a band and all I had my violin was my violin. So I did jam with a violin and realized I could play jazz on the violin. Wow. I had never heard of any jazz violinist at the time yet. So that's why uh, it, it hadn't come to my mind to try to play jazz on violin yet. But when that happened, uh, that's when uh, somehow I adapted the phrasing I had gotten, I developed on clarinet and sax in jazz to the violin. Yes. Yes. I wanted to ask you about this. Um, you know, because your jazz language is so horn like, it's so influenced by horn players, uh, not just the, the vibrato, the use of your vibrato, but the, the lines themselves. Uh, and how long were you playing sax and clarinet before you started doing it on, on the violin? Because it sounds like you completely uh, un understand the language and the harmony and all of that kind of thing, which is so far removed from classical violin. Yes, um, maybe two years. No more. And when you were learning that stuff, who were the sax players or that you were listening to? And how carefully did you did you transcribe solos and do all of that usual, you know, jazz kind of? I never transcribed solos. Interesting. Um, I was listening to albums. There, there were no jazz schools in those days at all, you know. So all the only way to learn was from listening to, to records, yeah, which I was doing from uh, the time I woke up, drinking coffee, put an album, 
and all day long uh, practicing with the album and then at night going into a jazz club to jam and uh, put into practice what I had the, yeah. uh, in, during the day. So, so I was listening to Sonny Rollins and uh, soon after, I discovered John Coltrane, yeah. who um, I saw in one of his, maybe his second concert in Paris with his own band. So that was, uh, that was a musical shock. And uh, before that, Miles, in fact, his trumpet sound was was a big inspiration. That's I love that straight sound, no vibrato, yes, very yes. very smooth. So that's these were my influences, because I, you know when the, when 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 it got into my mind that after all, I, jazz could be played on violin too, and people seemed very excited too. That's another thing is in the club where I just jam. People were seemed to be really very, very excited by it. So I said, wow, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So maybe it's not a bad idea. And that's when I started looking if there were any jazz violinists. And I discovered Stefan Grappelli, but he was at a low in his career at that time because the Hot Club de France uh, with Django, uh, Django had passed away, I believe. Uh, yeah. So, no, anyway. Uh, so Stefan and then Joe Venuti. Uh, through records, I would go into a record store and, and then Stuff Smith. And Stuff Smith was my favorite of all the jazz artists of um, the previous. Why? What was it about Stuff that you? He, he, he it was his approach. It was really a, a bit like sax or trumpet, the punch he had. Yeah. Um, um, more than the traditional way of European way of playing violin, for instance. Yeah. And and that's that was something I felt in myself already that was kind of uh, natural. Since I had discovered jazz first playing it on wind instruments, um, for me, that was the way to, the violin had to be adapted to that phrasing yeah. instead of the other way around. Yeah, yeah which most violins were doing before. They were adapting jazz to the instrument. And uh, so uh, Stuff Miss, uh, I loved it immediately because that's exactly the way I felt. So I was, I was looking for inspiration, you know, I was looking for a modern jazz violin because yeah. when I discovered jazz, I started um, uh, being hired as a clarinet player in a, in a student's band, you know, small band in Paris. And I learned swing music, Benny Goodman style jazz uh, with the standards. But this was not 1959, I believe, 1960. And so bebop was there already. And even yeah. more, even post-bop. Right. And uh, so when I discovered all the modern jazz uh, of the time, Miles' band with John Coltrane and, and then Coltrane's with his own band and his own music. Yeah. Uh, that really, that's when I really became a serious fan of jazz because the swing was fun for me, but um, it was just for fun. 
and then I would go back uh, to play my Mozart and Bach on, on vine. Yeah, right. But when I discovered modern jazz, then there was the whole harmonic um, concept that uh, was so close to uh, the French composer, the impressionist, you know. The Interesting. So I, I grew up with that music in France in my youth, and that I was very, very much uh, influenced by that. But when, when I discovered modern jazz uh, using similar type of chord changes, then, then for me, that was uh, the ultimate, that was great. So that's when it really, uh, I, I, I got the idea of dedicate my life to jazz online. But there was no uh, really single modern jazz violinist, violinist at the time. Exactly, I was gonna ask about in, that, yeah. In finally, so, so I kept listening to trumpet players and sax players and piano as well, Bill Evans. Yeah, yeah, very impressionistic. Yeah. You know, it's always puzzled me. I wonder if you have an explanation why we had we had the swing violinists, you know, like uh, Venuti and and uh, stuff and Sven Asmussen, and, but there were no beboppers. There was really nobody doing the modern the modern sound that you started doing on on violin. No models for you to to use, you know, yeah. other than horn players. Exactly, Sven Sven was the closest to yeah. Being modern, he was right on the edge. Yeah, close to it, but um, not quite yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was great. So anyway, and it you know it brings a, a a point that's very dear to my heart, and that's this idea that that string playing should represent the time that we live in. Like when you were doing this in the '60s, that was what was current. That was what was happening in the popular music culture. In fact, it was the front edge. It was a bit of the avant-garde, you know. You were doing some quite experimental sort of playing early in your career with uh, modern jazz, which is what was happening in the 60s. Um, but in, you know, uh, in string, in conservatories, we're playing music that's hundreds of years old. And this idea of string players not representing their own time, you know, and you moved with that time from the 60s to the 70s, to fusion, and like Miles' career, who also moved from bebop to cool jazz, to modern jazz, to fusion, and you did the same thing with the violin, which is remarkable for anybody on any instrument, but especially for violin, where the tradition is to play older music. And uh, I, I just think that you were, this is one of the th reasons you were uh, an amazing groundbreaking example for me, you know, to to feel that, oh, our job as string players is not just as much as I love Mozart and Bach and Tchaikovsky, but our job also as composers, maybe it's especially as composers, because as players, you're just an interpreter, you know, but as a composer, you have to represent your own, you can't write music that's a hundred years old. You have to write music in your own time and place. Uh, and I and, and you were doing that and you've done that consistently your whole career. Uh, and that just was, uh, you know, there's nobody else in the string world who was an example of this. So for all string players, thank you. <laughs> because that's, uh, 
a huge, uh, you know, it's a gift to us. And, and it was, uh, must have been a difficult thing for you. I'm curious, you know, when the decision to leave the classical world, because you were obviously a very good classical player and could have probably had a solo career. Um, how, you know, were there people telling you not to do this? You know, your teachers, your parents? Uh... Of course. But <laughs> <laughs> had I listened to some of the advices, I would have never done my career, yeah, after that. But it depends. You know, there were also some people, very few, a minority, but even some classical violinists older than me were very surprised and would come down to the jazz clubs playing in Paris, encouraging me to, to keep going. But um, yeah, it's great to speak to, to a musician, especially another violinist like you, because you, you got it all. You understood exactly what, uh, what went in my mind and the whole process. Yeah. Um, uh, the only other violinist I, was interviewed by before you was Chris House, who oh yes, yeah. love his playing too. Amazing player. Yeah. So anyway, well, it's true that there is the composer side in jazz. Um, yes. Not as like in classical music because I know some musicians who are great, uh, terrific at uh, at improvisation, but don't really write music right or vice vice versa yeah. but um to um so you understand a, a bit even better than you understood already that my goal when i was a kid was uh, when i was in my youth my dream was to become a classical conductor and composer yes uh violin was not my birth passion. I love the instrument, obviously, since I chose it, uh, because I, in my youth, I learned uh, violin, piano, and clarinet. And I chose violin uh, to, you know, to, 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 to go further, to, uh, to study at the conservatory and all that, too. So, obviously, the instrument appealed to me. So expressive, and we know that. But uh, I had started taking classes of uh, in composition, first theory for two years, before I could get to the level of uh, entering the conservatory in the composition class. Uh, so that was my, my main goal. Uh, it was never to become a classical um, concert player, a violinist. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the thing is, at the time, it was very strict. You, you, the, the, the composition class in France, uh, the conservatory, you couldn't write a, a, a neoclassical melody at all. It had to be yeah, you know, modernist. Yeah. Absolutely atonal. Right. And uh, it it was too strict, in fact. Exactly what I what I felt, yeah. And uh, then I discovered jazz, and wow, there, you know, I could I could play a melody. That... Anyway, so that's why it fulfilled my dream somehow to become a composer, 
in a different way, which I did not expect. Yes. But play my instrument at the same time, which is a double yeah. problem. So. transition from classical music just technically talking about some violin technique if we can get into the into the weeds a little bit for our string playing friends when you came out of the conservatory with your you know spiccato and Mar martelet and collet and all these things how how long did it take for you because <laughs> i know how long it took me to forget all of that stuff it took me years but how how was this transition for you to forget your classical bow arm and i don't know how long it took me exactly but um the first solo album i did when i was 21 years old uh, which is very bebop um uh, i'm not someone who listened to my albums all the time. Although now I have more time at my age, but in those days, you know, I was looking at yeah. the present and the future. So I didn't listen to that album for many, many years. And when I rediscovered it, uh, like 20, 30 years later, they, they reissued it as CD when the CDs came out. You know? So uh, I was surprised to hear how jazzy my phrasing was already. Yeah. It was real bebop with the accent. Um, and so I guess it took me maybe a year or two, let's say two years maximum. But I think I, I was like a sponge. I, you know, yeah. I started jazz, I was 70, 17 years old, I think, on violin. So 17, 18, anyway, it came very fast, but also because I was spending a lot of time at home playing along with albums and, you know, uh, imitating, learning the phrasing of these trumpet players and sax and, yeah. and piano with the accents. Um, however, I, it was not 100% um, jazz and uh, having eliminated totally my classical technique because I remember there was one guy, there was one drummer. Was, most musicians were, were very um, positive and encouraged me when, when they heard me play, you know, that young and they were very surprised, uh, especially in those days uh, and especially in France, uh, there were these different styles of jazz and modern jazz musicians 
would uh, not want to be mixed with uh, swing musicians. You know, there were clubs where it was very exclusive, you know. And so they they didn't like violinists anymore because all the jazz violinists had more of that. Grappelli and yeah. Romantic, uh, you know. Uh, yeah. Which, which didn't fit at all in modern jazz. So, and, and I was, they accepted me because I had that phrasing, you know, I didn't, I'd got rid of the classical vibrato because I understood yes. after all that's for me that's what you have to do when like the other way around when you hear a uh, Ravel and there is um, I forgot which piece as uh, alto sax uh, I think the bolero maybe and uh, these classical sax players reproduce a very, um, uh, the, the vibrato is like a classical violin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to fit the style once again, you know, adapt the instrument. All right, so um, th there was just a drummer who once told me, you're great, but you, it's a little bit too much straight like Bach still try to, you know, have more, uh, more. dynamics, uh, like jazz, these accents. Up and, ghosting and... Well, yeah, he did specify ghosting, but he encouraged me to do so. And so that, that, that was good because you have a lot of people who say, oh, you're great, you're great, but they don't give you any clue to improvement yeah. that you need. Yes. Nobody's perfect, especially when you stop. So that was very helpful. Another funny story is uh, when uh, first time I played in the States at the Monterey Jazz Festival in 1967, Dizzy Gillespie was there. And uh, so he, he, complimented, he complimented me on the, my playing, oh. but he said, you know, you should uh, listen to country music or play country music. Wow, I, I never would have guessed that. Oh, it was a joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> he was—he used to joke a lot, a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He used to, to joke a lot. And but uh, then uh, moving to the states later on, and meeting, uh, you know, bluegrass players, and, and then I understood he was right, because there there is the there is a a link, there is a tie to. To that yes. boat, crazy. Yes. and uh, Vassar Clements and uh, and uh, yeah well you know it's interesting because in fiddling you know I talk a lot about rhythm stuff you know this whole strum bowing kind of stuff and the the fiddlers have always been much closer to the folk folk style in a way you know where the, where the rhythm is an important driving they're the only instrument accompanying dance dancers so they had to keep the groove so there's this type of uh, groove 
happening in the bow arm that doesn't happen with classical players. And it's interesting as you as your career progressed and coming through the 70s and into the 80s stuff where you started doing more electronics and uh, sequenced and synthesizers and you know you're uh, uh, a keyboard player as well and doing a lot of writing and I'm guessing a lot of that writing is done at the keyboard. Yes. Uh, and your your playing as in particular your bow arm, but also to some degree the vibrato started coming back to a sort of a classical uh, element of straight eights or straight sixteenths rather than more a more swung kind of um, ghosty thing, a little more consistent, closer to the Bach, you know, that, that kind of thing. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that and the artistic decisions to you know, again, to, to move, was it a matter of staying current with what was happening musically at that point in the 80s, which is no longer the 60s? Uh, and you're, you're just, your instinct to stay with your own time? Well, um, the thing is, once I got into what they called jazz rock at the time, the mix of, uh, after playing with rock bands and discovering that style of music, the beat being even instead of uh, the swing being more like a triplet feel yeah. uh, allowed me to bring back some of my classical technique, which I felt uh, uh, sounded good in some spots, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so it's true that what, it, in fact, I played straight jazz, traditional jazz, bebop and post-bop, and even avant-garde after that, for about seven years maybe. And uh, I didn't write, not, I, I wrote a few tunes, but not much, because my style of writing, I was so influenced by, as I explained earlier, by youth, by all the classical composers. What I wrote was not really fitting bebop or post-bop so, so well. So, but I was therefore, I was focused on being a violinist playing jazz on the instrument. But after seven years, um, I, especially that I was following a style of music that had been developed before me by horn players and piano players. And uh, I started to feel I wanted to do I didn't want to do that my entire life exclusively playing this style of phrasing with the violin. I said, the violin can express so much more. Uh, it's so expressive that, uh, and then of course, uh, when I started feeling that, the Beatles just came out with their first album and then, you know, this new uh, music for America, all the rock style and progressive rock, especially, um, that was encouraged me to start writing my own music. Because I said, there I can really let let my my inspiration come out, and whatever it is, whatever it is, I'll use it. But since there is some elements from classical music. That's when I started writing long structures, written uh, arrangements 
yes. and spots for improvisation, keeping the jazz element. looking through here and, and seeing your charts and how detailed and and some of these things like no absolute time i'm listening to that of course i'm oh. jumping ahead now into the into the 80s um with the, the african musicians that you were using and i'm trying to i'm going like okay the kick is here i think the one is here but you know the the polyrhythms were so that's a whole other story Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. If you were no, 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 no it's fine. I, I said everything I have to say about the <laughs> age. <laughs> I'm, uh, I want to jump back to finish your this this thought a, a little bit. Um, going to the U.S. in the '70s, working with guys like Zappa and John McLaughlin, uh, Chick Corea, and and uh, all of the amazing. Uh, uh, music that was happening in the U.S. and California at that time, uh, but especially the rock musicians and getting back to sort of your sound moving from this more acoustic sound to this electric sound. Were you more influenced by uh, guitar players uh, or was it keyboard players like guys like Alan Zavad? You know, your your uh, this, especially that phase shifting sound sounds so much like an analog key. Sometimes I couldn't tell if it's you or Alan because you're sliding and you're doing very similar stuff that he does with the mod wheel you're doing with your fingers. My question is, were you influenced by the synth players like Alan, or did you choose players like that because you had the sound in your head already as a composer? Yeah, that's the yeah. last. <laughs> yeah, 
explanation. Yeah, I chose Alan because he could indeed. Uh, th th there was this affinity of styles, what I was expecting on my composition, and yes. um, he was great. Al Alan Zavod, right? You speak about Alan Zavod. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He um, he uh, he had studied at the Berkeley School of Music and was an excellent jazz pianist. So he had that, he had that knowledge and, uh, but was one of the rare jazz pianists at the time who was also knowledgeable about this new technology with the synthesizers, because it was not just a, a keyboard and yeah. pressing a button, you know, you had you plug. your own sound. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, in fact, I, I was starting to, since I had, learn piano, I had access to keyboards, organs, and electric piano, and synthesizers later on. But uh, with the band, I couldn't play violin and keyboards at the same time. So you're right that I was using keyboards to write music, like 98% of my music was written on keyboards. Uh, rarely it happened on violin, but rarely. And uh, I had the, a sound in mind that I wanted from Alan, as for his solos that would uh, fit with uh, my violin sound indeed and the music. Yeah. So that's how it happened. Yeah. Also uh, curious about how you first connected with, with Frank Zappa because you did, you recorded King Kong, which was uh, a lot of his compositions and, and he worked closely with you on that record, I believe. Uh, and this was before you joined his band. Um, Correct. That's it. How did that? How did you come across Frank? How did that happen? And and uh, curious if if you were pulling him in a jazz direction, uh, and was he pulling you in a rock direction? Kind of, yeah. Um, what happened is I had the, my first record deal uh, with an American label uh, with the World Pacific Jazz in Los Angeles. And uh, I signed in 1968. So the following year, I came to spend a good part of the year, 1969, in Los Angeles to, to record uh, several albums for that label. And at the same time, I, uh, I was hired to play in clubs and jazz festivals eventually. And as a side note, I needed musicians. I needed the band. And uh, I found George Duke, who yeah. was young and known, like I was unknown. But the difference, I had a record deal, <laughs> and so I could. Uh, anyway, so uh, I started uh, playing in town with George Duke. We had a band together. And uh, the, the president, record producer of uh, Pacific Jazz, one day told me for the next album before I flew back to France, he said, I don't know why he felt I should uh, do a collaboration with some rock or pop musician. Could feel there was uh, something there. Yeah. And he heard that Zappa was also uh, wanting, he didn't know him personally, but he had heard the, the rumor that he wanted, he was interested to do a, an album with a jazz musician or a jazz album. So. He suggested um, that collab collaborate with him. So I knew a bit of his music 
not that well. And it was so far removed from the style of jazz I was playing at the time. Yeah. But the thing, it was, it was great. It was very, um, you know, I appreciated that music and uh, I thought he was very gifted, you know, great composer. So I said, I'm not sure what it's going to result from such a collaboration, but why not? I'm, I'm open yeah. to do yeah. it. And so he called Frank and uh, we had a meeting and Frank, uh, when he heard my, you know, some the last records I just did, uh, he accepted immediately. Uh, the idea from the president, the record producer was to have Frank arrange his music for an instrumental uh, album. And in two weeks, he, it was, he was ready. So we're in the wow. studio. And uh, that's, uh, that was King Kong. Yeah. It was, the concept was Jean-Luc Ponty played the music of Frank Zappa. I just had one piece, one piece, but no title. And he found the title for me, Frank. And how would you like to have a head like head that? Like that. <laughs> Flew back to France. In the meantime, Frank loved uh, George Duke's playing and hired him in, in the mud. <laughs> yeah. And then George one day called me, said Frank, like you to join the band, the mud. <laughs> so that was uh, four years later. Uh, I that's when I moved to Los Angeles to start touring with uh, the mothers. Yeah. Amazing. And, you know, the connection also, the classical connection uh, with Zappa, because he was so interested in Ferez and, you know, classical music, modernist music, the kind of music probably you didn't love so much. But the fact that he was interested in that, I would think, made him think very seriously about a violinist who is a conservatory trained person and have this affinity with you as a composer as well. Yeah, well... I know that's what he appreciated is that uh, I was able, like George Duke as well, and, and uh, others in the band, we were able to read music right. like classical musicians and play his music that was indeed inspired by Stravinsky as well. Yeah. And, uh, but also we could improvise, play the blues, you know, rock and everything. So, Dupree's Paradise. Yeah, so the only thing is because uh, I was not yet into rock. I mean, I came from jazz and one of my his band, I was still in my head, in my personality, mostly a jazz player and focused on improvisation. And since I had George with me, when it would be my turn to take a solo 
you know, it would turn into a jazz band. Right. A bit too much. I must say that when I see these videos, uh, I had some guts to, you know, to, and I kept going forever. But now when I see that, when am I going to stop? <laughs> but, uh, it was, yeah. So that was getting a bit too far in the jazz world for Frank, I must say. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Which I understand when I see that nowadays. And in fact, being in this band, I learned to be a band leader. And when you write your own music, and, and I, I, he was a great example of someone who was able to get the best out of a yeah. band to, to be at the service of his music. So um, that's it. So, uh, yeah. At first, I had many solos, and but they, they were so long that it sort of. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's it. Very funny. Um, did you ever uh, just sort of talking about rock? Did you ever experiment with distortion? I think that there was one uh, one track I heard you use distortion on, but you never really uh, used distortion very much. No, you're right. Uh, I liked it, and I, for fun, I would do it backstage, and people thought they were a guitar player. Right, right. <laughs> but that was the reason, since I had guitarists in all of my bands, you know, that I found it that to have a guitar sound with the violin. Uh, then you don't know who's playing. It was fun, but uh, yeah, it was, I think it was more interesting to that I have another sound than guitar. I understand. I understand. One other little uh, technical question. Uh, also, I noticed uh, I, I've saw in a few spots where you're doing like percussive stuff at the tip, you know, kind of doing this. But uh, I've never saw you do any chopping. You know what chopping? And certainly you have the ability to to do that if you wanted to. Um, you know, all the technique in the world. Um, but you never did, and I'm and I'm kind of curious why that never appealed to you musically. Why that choice was to to not? Do well, that. it's not that it, it did not appeal to me, but um, I never learned to do it. Oh come on! And I discovered it in America, and you are one of the best at that, man. Oh, you, you're incredible. I love it. Yeah. No, I I, I really like it very much. But I never got into that, and uh, um, I don't know. It's not something that came naturally, or I would have had to practice a lot. And um, so I'll let you do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and other guys, yeah. Daryl Anger, too, has some. Daryl, Casey Dreesen. Yeah. yeah. So many so many great choppers out there. Yeah, I was curious. I, I just was. I was. No, oh, so yeah. you're right. I came with the idea of the tip of the bow, and that's it. So. Yeah. Also, you're always working with drummers and percussion, so you didn't really need it, you know. No, I could maybe when we did a trio with uh, Aldimiro and Stanley Clark, the right of strings, for instance. Right. right. With modulants. Right. Yeah, I'm wondering if there are, uh, you know, musicians who you would have loved to work with. Um... Well. Um... When I discovered uh, Stuff Smith, it was an album called um, Swinging, on, Swinging on a String, I believe. Uh -huh. And uh, I discovered 
Oscar Peterson. Oscar Peterson, Peterson was on piano, Ray yeah. Brown on bass. And uh, I, I was listening uh, as much to Oscar Peterson as to Stuart Smith playing, because of the amazing pianist. Yeah. And uh, I always loved his playing. And we crossed paths in Canada, in uh, Montreal, both playing with the symphony orchestra. Uh, not together, but uh, me playing my own music and Oscar Peterson playing his own. And so he said, uh, he, we should do something together. And I would have loved it. Uh, I regret. Uh, yeah, yeah. For instance, that's one of them. Yes, that's what I wanted to know. Yeah. You were playing with an orchestra. What were you playing? My own music. Uh, Was it your concerto for, for, jazz or, for jazz violin and orchestra? No, 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 no. Um, you mean that's the piece by Zappa? Uh, well, no, there's that one, but there's also one I believe you recorded with uh, like a big band in, in Germany, uh, Concerto for Jazz Violin and ah, Orchestra, like I early, guess. like 69. It was a big band, yes. No, no, I, I had uh, an orchestrator arranged uh, my own music, Imaginary Voyage, uh, and I forgot what piece it is, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that was quite an experience. Yeah, have you ever, as a composer, have you ever written for anything other than your ensembles? Have you written for orchestra or for string quartet or anything like that? Not, no. Uh, I did quite a few concerts with symphony and I wrote maybe a couple of arrangements. Uh, with mostly strings, yes. But otherwise, since I have, I did learn, I, I wish I did, because that was, I would have loved it, but I didn't. So I had to hire really professional orchestrators who knew how to, the range of all these woodwinds and, uh, you sure. know, it's quite a, a science. Yeah, yeah. That I don't sure. have, so. Uh, with just suggestions, of course, since it's my music, but I really enjoyed it. Play, playing my own music with a symphony is great. Yeah, yeah. No string quartets? No, no, never. I look forward to if you ever do. I should uh, do it quickly before it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> I think you you look to be in amazing shape. Uh, I think you have plenty of time, my friend. How how do you stay in shape? As I'm curious, uh, what what do you do to stay in shape? Because you're thin, you're healthy. Yeah, well, um, I guess it's genetic for one thing, but also the great food that my wife is cooking. Ah, this helps. Very healthy. We learn uh, first of all um, Mediterranean. That's where she's from. And, uh, but also in California, we learned uh, how to eat, uh, you know, healthier than uh, the way we used to in Normandy, which uh, yeah. is good, uh, very tasty, but a lot of uh, greens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. yoga, you know, I practice also. Yeah, and what are you uh, what are you practicing these days? And and also, I want to know what you're listening to and interested in musically. Um, I know you do a lot of Sefcik and Shradiak and things like that. Yeah, um, it's true. I for many years I kept uh, 
also playing at home for me, Bach sonatas. But after a while, I, when I was switching from that and then playing jazz, what I was mentioning earlier, the straight bow phrasing of bar, uh, I couldn't use playing jazz. So it was not like uh, warming up or practicing to play jazz. It was something totally different. Right, right. Pure technique exercises, though. That's a different thing, yes, to keep uh, the fingers going. Yeah. What are you listening to? Do you uh, do you keep up with with contemporary music these days with any artists or anything like that? Well, I'm trying to when when uh, I don't have as much time nowadays with internet and yeah, technology, yeah. you know, it's amazing. Uh, everybody thinks you're available, you know, they send you a note and they want to know what uh, how you're doing what you think of their piece they just wrote and then this and that. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, I listen to radio when during meals or when I have time, when I'm not doing working. Radio, classical radio, jazz radio, all types of radio to, to discover new talent. That's the only way I, I can. Yeah. And uh, and your daughter, Clara, you've, you've uh, recorded quite a bit and she's made you know, I don't think five or six records of her own as a pianist uh, and has gotten quite a good reputation. What was that like to work with your daughter? Well, I didn't want to first work too much with her. Like, uh, I didn't want it to be appear nepotism. I wanted her to, to grow up as a musician, as an artist and to come up with her own music. Yes. And after she did, because uh, I must say, I appreciate some of her compositions. It's very emotional, um, very feminine, but th there is a, a, a lot of emotion. And yeah. uh, so, yes, I like, I enjoy it. It's quite a contrast with my music sometimes. And um, for the past few years, we have done a few shows together. Oh, nice. Yeah, playing uh, her music as well and mine. Very cool. And when you're going back to practicing, when you when you practice, is there is there anything that's difficult for you? Is there anything that you need to work on? I mean, it seems like, you know, your intonation is flawless. It's it's so remarkable. And I just want to say how I, for maybe, you know, non string playing jazz players out there may not appreciate what a, an accomplishment it is uh, to be able to do the kind of improvising you do and to make it in tune. Because it's one thing to practice a classical concerto and you're playing it exactly the same way every time. But improvisation is a very different animal and it's you're reaching for things, you're going for things. And you hear horn players all the time, miles, going for things and missing and stuff. And you never miss. And oh. on a violin, you know, to be able to do that and to be able to do it in tune. Um, it's just remarkable, and and I wonder, you know, is that is that really Sevchik that does that, or how do you? Just... Well, thanks for the compliment. I mean, I'm not perfect. I have accidents because yes. because as you say, you know, I you you improvise and I go into a position and line I never played before. So yeah. oh, where do I go from here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some accidents can happen. Yes, yeah. but. Um, 
maybe the tuning come from the fact that I've spent so much time on piano and keyboards. You know, in the, as when I founded my band in 75, I finally had a chance to to be uh, to to record my own music and so I, I didn't stop for years it was my main activity more than even practicing violin i was uh, the whole day at keyboards to come up with new music improvising and coming up with new ideas yeah. <clears throat> and uh, then uh, so often i had lines which i had to play with piano or synth right and that's when the, with the violin you you know, you have to be really careful because it's, yes, you're doubling. Yeah, you're really in tune with it. So maybe, maybe that that was what stimulated me to push me to really play as much in tune as I could. Yeah, uh, and it's true that I had had that comment from several musicians, which uh, I appreciate the violinist because it's true that it's it's not so, easy. Um, and so it's not so much from practicing anymore. I I don't practice as much as I used to, but just scales and arpeggios to warm up almost every day if I can. Did uh, you ever have? Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Did you ever have any tendonitis issues? Because you were on the road so much, playing so much. No, not from uh, the wrist of. Uh, but um, uh, when I arrived in the States, when I moved to the States, I was 9, 20, 30 years old. And uh, I started to have pain in the, in the back, in the shoulder and the neck. Yeah. And uh, I discovered yoga in LA, in Los Angeles. And uh, I started practicing and that helped me a lot because I started being conscious while playing the instrument yeah. of uh, feeling my muscles and my body. And, and if I was too tense, then I would relax immediately. And that was the problem before. So that helped me uh, solve the problem. It, you know, yeah, after touring a lot with John Anderson, uh, 2014, 2015, uh, and growing older, uh, you know, I had a big pain in, in uh, my shoulder, you know, I could I could lift my arm. Really, it was very painful. Wow! So I had to to have some uh, massages, you know, and uh, and and uh, chiropractic. Yep. His chiropractor taught me some some exercises to do, and uh, after a few months, I was cured. Wow! Question about teaching. Do you ever, do you teach much? I came across some comment on a video uh, on some, somewhere on YouTube. Uh, somebody said that you were his mentor at Peabody. And I'm wondering, maybe he meant he was at Peabody and just from watching you online or something like that. But uh, did you ever teach at any school, any university? Do you teach privately? And do you have uh, protégés? No, uh, I only did very few master classes. The first one was at Berkeley, maybe 2001. Uh, I did a second one there, spent a couple of days. And then it, I was invited in some other countries where I, was, I would be playing with my band and festival. 
including in Russia, in Moscow, um, uh, Spain, uh, and so on. And uh, I would do a masterclass. But now that uh, I reach uh, my senior years and <laughs> seriously uh, considering about retirement or semi-retirement, uh, not traveling so much, you know, and yeah. a few concerts here and there. And yes, then I intend to spend more time dedicating my time to, to, to teaching. I've never taught privately, only master classes, but wow. I get a lot of requests from uh, people who would like to come to, I'm sure. to, to me for, and yeah, I, I love sharing, I love trying to pass, not that I feel like I should uh, correct necessarily students, but if I can pass some ideas that can be positive and useful, yes. Like uh, I, this is the first time I'm going to do a, mas a master class also at the LAS Music Festival, yes. yep. International Music Festival. Yes, this summer from July 17th through the 31st. In exactly, Tuscany. <laughs> in Tuscany, Italy. Yeah. Um, so that's, uh, I'm going to do more of that now. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any words of wisdom for, for young string players who, uh, you know, want to follow in your footsteps? To follow their instinct. First of all, it's very important because it, it, it's not because some things work for me that it's necessarily going to work for others especially you were mentioning being of your time it's important and yes it's different now so um i guess uh that's it that you know a general advice like this would be follow your instinct yeah. as i mentioned earlier if i had followed some of the advices i got was to abandon jazz <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> Did you ever come uh, run into personally into uh, Zbigny Zeifert? We only crossed paths once in a festival okay. in Austria, yeah, unfortunately. Uh, in those days, uh, I was not, I think Poland was still in the part of the communist uh, bloc. Ah, yes. So uh, it was very difficult to go play there and it's too bad because we had a very warm conversation for 10 minutes and that's it. Yeah. And, uh, he was a great jazz violinist, yeah. Yeah, he was doing a very uh, a similar kind of outside, you know, really uh, free kind of kind yes. of stuff. And uh, it was so interesting to see, you know, I've, I'm listening to so much of your stuff and and hearing that free stuff that you were doing early on, like in the, uh, in in Zappa's concerto that he wrote, you know, for low budget orchestra, and in the concerto that you wrote, which I'm very curious about this, this uh, concerto for jazz violin and, and orchestra, um, because there are these open sections where you were doing free, really free uh, jazz kind of playing, you know, going in and out of, of the harmonic area quite freely and how you scored that. It, I guess it was for a big band and sort of a rhythm section and you would drop out the band for a while and just be doing this 
with the rhythm section. I don't know if you remember, it was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's a, and uh, it, the guy was a great, in fact, it was written by Michel Colombier, a okay. composer, arranger who was doing a lot of uh, soundtracks, film scores. I see. In fact, he moved uh, to Hollywood in the, in the 80s, I believe. And um, he passed away very young, but he was very talented. And he wrote, in fact, that concerto, except for the front part, it's my piece. It's, uh, that's why it's a mixed um, composition of, of his mind. Right. The front part is mine, which he arranged for a big band as well. And then it, it leads into his own. So I forgot, but it's true. It was a period where I was ready to, to go anywhere. Yeah. In yeah. Crazy direction. And, uh... encourage string players to learn how to do this because even though it's 40 years old still a lot of people are still catching up to that to where you were 50 years ago yeah well thanks uh, anyway it's so wonderful to talk to you man i think i'm so grateful for your time i'm wondering are any chance i know you're slowing down the touring and all of that but i mean i miss it a bit though you know in a way but it's all the traveling all the preparation. I know. The passion is there and it never goes away. So the time you spend on stage playing is uh, the ultimate, you know? Yeah. And also I'm very sensitive, very to, to, to the vibes, this emotion that goes between the audience and the performers on stage. Yeah. But, um, you know, I've toured a lot when I've given a lot throughout my life. So I think I come to a point where sure. I just look backwards and be happy of what I did. <laughs> you should and, be, man. You have many laurels yeah. to rest on, as they say. Yeah. Well, thanks. Well, thank you again for your time, man. What a what an honor. And like I said, You're a welcome. lifelong. Thank you for the yeah. interview. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. I hope to see you in class. I'm looking forward. Yes. Are you yeah. coming to? I hope so. I hope so. I hope I can. We'll yeah, see. great. Yeah. All right, cool.
Very cool, man. Thanks again. You're welcome. Great. It was really great talking to you, and I appreciate it. <laughs> likewise, my friend. Thank you so much. All the best. Bye-bye. To you too. Okay. I have my coffee. You have your chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> The same drug. Okay. Oh, before we start, story. Yeah. In the recording, uh, John Adams. Yes. What what kind of fiddle do you play? So I'm playing this instrument right here. Oh. This is a custom-made instrument made here in Nashville that I designed myself. Cool. But it's six strings. Did you design just the body or also the electronics? The whole thing, the body, the tuners here, fine tuners here. Yeah, I can tell. I can yeah. see. And, um, and it also has a strap, a neck strap. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I saw some videos of you with that, but I was not sure which one you used on, on yeah. in the recording because it, it's almost acoustic at times, you know, close to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to talk with you about instruments uh, for sure because a lot of the listeners are going to be very interested in that. So um, before we start again, the yeah, tune, yeah, the, the tuning is uh, what's a low string. <laughs> The low string is a low F. Oh, yeah. Low Fa. So it's like a C and then a fifth below. Yeah. All right. <laughs> That's really interesting. And where was it recorded? Uh, we, we recorded the orchestra in uh, London at Abbey Road. Yeah. Oh, cool. And then we actually overdubbed the solo part separately at Skywalker in uh, in. Yeah, California, San Francisco. Yeah. Okay. Just one quick second. Matt. Yes. I forgot something. Thanks for listening. If you dug what we're talking about and you want to dig in deeper, please check out the For the Greater Groove Facebook group where I post about each of my guests and where you can leave your comments and opinions. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And if you're digging the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave me a rating or a review. Thanks a lot and groove on. Mm -hmm.